Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast. With your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey Videocast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me for the first time in show history somehow, even though we've been friends for a long time now online, is my good buddy Ryan Lambert. Ryan, what's going on, man? I'm chilling, man. Real uh, podcast recording marathon session today, but um, I'm getting through it. Yeah. I mean, the, we're, so we're recording this on a Monday uh, afternoon, I guess. You've done a couple of uh, shows already for Puck Soup. I've, yep. uh, I've done one already with Mike Johnson previewing the Eastern Conference. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of, a lot of hockey, a lot of talking, but you know what? Um, it beats other lines of work, so I can't really It certainly that. does. Um, so here's the plan. Uh, like I said, I did one with Mike Johnson where we did the Eastern Conference, but you and I are going to do the West and we're going to do a similar thing, stealing it from, uh, the podcast, uh, Godfather, um, Zach Lowe, uh, where he basically does like breakdowns, 10 minute segments for each series. I'm going to set a timer and we're going to treat it as a very serious thing. As soon as the buzzer goes off, we're going to switch and not linger on them. And that'll kind of keep us, uh, in line and tidy. Cause I know like sometimes you do this stuff. Uh, I found in the past where you, like, you get talking about one series for like 25 minutes and then all of a sudden you're like burnt out by the time you get to the third one and you don't do it justice. So we're going to try to do things evenly for all the, all the uh, fans of the different teams out there. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Uh, so I'm going to start the clock here and we are going to start with the Sharks and the Knights. We got a, you know, I think this is the most fun series probably in the entire league and, uh, we're going to start this podcast off on a high note and it's going to be an exciting series to watch. Probably overqualified for a round one matchup, but I'm looking forward to uh, to watching it. And I don't know, I, I, where do we start with this one? I guess like let's start with the Sharks' perspective because obviously um, there's so many storylines there to talk about. And I think the biggest one is how uh, how willing should we to should we be to excuse or I guess overlook their late struggles where they went one eight and one before winning a couple of meaningless games in the end, which basically cost them the one seed in the West and forced them to play this much tougher matchup than they would have otherwise. Well, it's tough, right? Because on the one hand, you look at these guys on paper and you say, yeah, they, they should be the number one team in the West. They, they have a, a significantly stronger, you know, one through 20 roster than, than I'd, I'd say everybody, but Tampa and Boston. Right. Mm-hmm. But their goaltending is so bad. It's so bad. Yeah. It's not even an elephant and in the room. It's just, I mean, it's just... It's, it's the room. Like, yeah. that's that's the real problem. And I, I wrote a column about this last week. Like, I feel like Vegas is the absolute worst draw they could have gotten because they are almost as good as the Sharks, I would say, just, you know, in actually playing the game. But so much worse or so much better rather at actually stopping the puck that, mm. you know, it, it, it's just, it's really tough. I could see them getting by against Calgary because, you know, that goaltending is only okay too. And I could see them getting by against 
you know, what, either of the wild cards. But yeah, Vegas is such a tough draw. I I don't know how how San Jose deals with it. Yeah, I mean, all the numbers for Vegas since getting Marks on a deadline are obviously uh, beautiful, right? Like, there's what, 56% shot share, um, which is pretty much only behind Calgary and Boston in that stretch. And it's like 56% similarly in high danger, so it's not like they're just peppering uh, goalies from far out. Like, this is a very legit dominant team that now has uh, not only those t- two lines in the top six that can completely... Uh, dominate the game territorially, but also bumps a guy like Alex Tuck down to the third line and gives Cody Eakin someone talented to finally play with. And so this is a team that's really coming together and assuming Marc-Andre Fleury is healthy and, I mean, doesn't even need to be what he was last year in the postseason stretch because I don't think that's reasonable to expect that. But as long as he's better than Martin Jones, which seems like a very attainable task for him, you're right. Yeah. I don't think the, the discrepancy in the skater groups is big enough to offset that potential difference in net. And that's alarming. But I guess, um, you know, we constantly complain about the current playoff format and how it doesn't reward regular season success. And ultimately, San Jose had a chance to get Colorado in the first round. And they basically just crapped the bed at the end of the season and lost out to Calgary. And so I guess they really don't have anyone to fault but themselves. Yeah. And, and, you know, it it should also be said that, you know, who else wasn't particularly great down the stretch? The Vegas Golden Knights. Mm. But they sort of you know, knew what they were going to be like. They were pretty much locked into their spot, though, right? That, that's correct. Yeah, and that's the that's the and you know they didn't have Mark Andre Fleury for a pretty big chunk of uh, March and April, so maybe you factor that in as well. But you know, it, at least you can say neither one of these teams played their absolute best hockey at this time of year, and so maybe that makes things a little bit more interesting. Yeah, I mean, geez, I, I don't want. There's more facets than the Martin Jones thing, but I didn't even realize that he was like 64th of 65 qualified goalies and goal saved above average. The Sharks are 31st in both five on five and overall save percentage. Like it's just, it's, it's really bleak and it kind of highlights that they decided not to do anything at the deadline. But I guess what they did do was go out and add another forward. And then when you look at this skater group, like if anyone, you know, we talk about the Leafs and sort of how they're constructed and the questions they have on the blue line and in goal prevention. And we talk about, well, you know, they have enough skill that they can kind of outscore all of those deficiencies. Like if anyone can make up for having Martin Jones as a liability in net, it's this group because it's just, it's yep. obscene that they have guys like Kevin LeBanc and Joe Thornton, even at this stage of his career is pretty much like sheltered third line power play specialists because their top six is just that loaded. Yeah. And right. If you, if you're, if your third line has two guys that good on it, I, you know, you're either Vegas, Tampa or, or San Jose, right? Like even even the Bruins who, and even the Leafs who both have really good forward groups aren't that good. So yeah, I mean, th- th- I'm really excited for this series. I think um, their their first meeting after the after the deadline, what was it like a seven to five or seven to four game, something like that, was just so fun, so good, and you know, Vegas won because Martin Jones was in that. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and then um, yeah, they had the recent one as well with all the uh, all like the post whistle shenanigans and all. It, was, it, it seems like it's to be a heated series, and I think that you know, yeah, last, exactly. last year's matchup kind of flew under the radar just because Vegas was the full story, and I think that Nashville Winnipeg series in the second round kind of stole some of the shine and attention away. But like, if you just go back and watch those six games that were played for the most part, except for one like really lopsided blowout in Vegas, I believe it was like a really like it was a series that was played at a very high level with just immense skating and skill on display. And I think we're going to see more of that because like both these teams basically just got better and more talented along the way. And I don't know, I guess, I guess for San Jose, the, you know, Martin Jones isn't the elephant in the room. He said he's just the room. I guess the elephant in the room is Eric Carlson's health and what we should expect from him because there wasn't too much for a player of his caliber. There wasn't, seemingly nearly enough coverage of the fact that he missed like an extended period of the season there with an alarming, I guess, hamstring injury, which especially for a player who relies on his mobility to be as effective as he is, is a bigger deal than it might be for most. And so, you know, he came back at the end of the year in that one final game and he didn't show any ill effects, but I think San Jose ultimately needs him to be like the best defenseman in the world as he is capable of when he's healthy. And I guess we'll have to wait to see whether he's capable of that. And if he is like the talent of this group might just be too overwhelming for Vegas to keep up with. 
Yeah, I, you know, he, I think he missed, what, 24 games this year with his various injuries. And, that yeah, that's tough. You know, he, he just started skating, and, and he's apparently good to go. But, uh, I think he played 22 minutes the other night, but that's not playoff hockey. What if what if a game goes to overtime, that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. I guess it helps that you can go, well, we'll just uh, put Brent Burns out there instead. <laughs> Like that definitely is a is a real nice luxury to have, and and frankly, like I think the one area where they have a really good chance to differentiate themselves is the fact that they're probably going to have one or two of those guys on the ice for like fifty fifty five minutes in any given game. Um, whereas I'm not totally in love with Vegas's D group, like that makes a big difference, and and that could be the big differentiator, but. You know, as I say, I, I, I keep coming back to, uh, but Martin Jones, though, I don't know, man. Yeah, it's tough. It really does throw a wrinkle into it. I, yeah, you're right. I mean, we always talk about that with Nashville's blue line where it's like, you know, you have these two pairs and ultimately you're going to have to play your third pairing a bit. But when it comes down to crunch time or especially if you're chasing the game and need to score a goal, like you can really just shorten the game and just have those guys out on the ice at all times. And we've seen throughout their careers that both Carlson and Burns, are capable of just eating very heavy minutes and not really seeing any deterioration in their effectiveness. So if you're talking about those guys being out there for that often, um, that certainly is a dynamic that I think Vegas for as much as I like guys like Shea Theodore and Nate Schmidt can't really keep up with. And so you're right. I mean, that's another element to keep in mind here. I guess we're beating around the bush here. There's a minute left here in our uh, 10 minute preview of this series. Where, uh, where are you leaning with your pick? Oh, uh, I, I already got all my picks and I put them up on Twitter and I, because of the Martin Jones thing, have Vegas in five. <laughs> Ooh, that's, that's, a, I can see it. I can see it happening. That is a bit too rich for me. I, uh, I want to go with a cop out. I'm going to say sharks in six. Okay. Fair enough. I, I get, I get that too. So that's fine. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like by de facto for, uh, I, I feel like whenever I do these series, if I like. If I think it's going to be a super competitive one, I just pick the team I like slightly better in six games. Like I never have the courage to go five or even seven. It just seems like six a nice little, nice landing spot. But I mean, I could easily see this going seven. I could easily see Vegas winning it. I'd be a bit surprised if it was like, you know, one sided in either team's direction, just because I feel like these two teams are so, um, competitive with each other. But you're right. I mean, if Martin Jones completely falls apart and Mark Andre Fleury stands on his head, that could definitely swing, uh, Swing the tide in Vegas' uh, favor. All right, let's do uh, the other Pacific Division series. We've got the Flames and the Abs. And I think the series, you know, it seems like it would be really lopsided on paper and, and we're going to get into it, but Colorado does enough things well and has enough uh, game breakers that, and there's enough questions for me with this Calgary team that I could envision a scenario where it could actually be a pretty fun series. Ultimately, I think we're both going to lead with Taking the Flames, um, but this Flames team, obviously their high octane offense, I feel like didn't get enough coverage this season. We talk about Tampa Bay's of the world, the San Jose's of the world, but they were tied right there, second in goals with San Jose, and everything looks good on paper. All the you know total numbers for the full season, especially for a guy like Sean Monahan, look great. For Elias Lindholm, scored a ton of goals, nothing to complain about. But then when you look a bit beneath the surface. There are some questions, and I think some of the biggest ones for me are, like, what's going on right now with Sean Monaghan? I know that you are a fan of the team, and you probably follow them a bit more closely than me, but there's been some, like, we were talking about how there was, like, weird coverage of their Carlson injury and how there seemingly wasn't enough of it. It feels like all the Flames beat reporters and everyone that covers the team and spends time with them was, like, just kind of, like, always, like, subtly hinting at stuff and not really ever getting to the crux of what's going on, but both in terms of how he's looked and how he's played and how he's dropped off a bit as the season's gone along. Like, it seems like there is something going on there where I wouldn't be surprised at all to hear about it after the season, whenever that happens for the Flames. Yeah, that's always how it goes, right? Where it's like, oh, wow, this guy seemed to really hit a wall around game 65. And then at the end of the season, they go, oh, well, they had to, uh, they had to remove his hand organs. back on. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, I definitely wouldn't be surprised, but like, it, like you said, if you're, if you're getting what, what did he have? 35 ish goals yeah, out of, yeah. yeah, out of a guy who played at least a decent chunk of the season, uh, hurt 
you know, I think I think you take that, and you know, the, the thing for me with Monahan has always been you're going to get the goals for sure, um, but I, is he really the like? I think he's a really, really, really good number two center who, as a number one, is, like I said, always going to score the goals, but he doesn't really move the needle for you possession-wise in a way that you would really expect from a number one. Um, and, and that's kind of the thing that gives me pause about him more than anything else. Um, again, very good player, but there's just that little extra something missing from his game, maybe, that that you, you'd you like to see him add, but what is he, 24 now? I don't know if he's got that extra element to it. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. I think that's a fair evaluation. I mean, I think that, you know, stylistically he makes a ton of sense and we've seen the success with him just because he is, I think, a well above average finisher as he's shown at this point of his career as a shooter and obviously Johnny Goodger is one of the best playmakers in the league, so putting those two guys and those two skill sets together is obviously meshed and I think it makes a lot of sense, but you're right. I, I I don't know what those results would look like if he had to carry his own line, but I guess that's not necessarily a, a something that the Flames need to deal with or need to answer right now because they do have Johnny Goodrow. But I mean, there's other stuff, right? Like it seems like they're hell bent just, I guess, because the money they paid and maybe he showed just enough towards the end of the season to restore some goodwill and maybe some faith in him. But it seems like the Flames coaching staff is to, you know, just insisted on having James Neal in there, even though Austin Sarnik might be a better option. And then obviously, you know, Elias Lindholm, I think at the start of the year was such a good story. And I think people got a bit too overly infatuated with his shooting percentage heater. And now he's kind of come back down to earth a little bit and look more like he did in Carolina. And so there's like some stuff there that's going on where it makes me wonder what the actual offensive ceiling for this team is. But like I said, it's, it's really tough to argue with the results, especially how good they look towards the end of the year where they were neck and neck with San Jose. And then they just kind of hit that extra gear and yeah, really they pulled away. Over. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I overall would say that I like their forward group. Obviously, you know, the Kachuk line is, is, is going to always do well. And, and it, you know, I, I, I have my, uh, my own history with, with underrating or, or however you want to put it with Mark Jankowski. Um, but he's been a perfectly serviceable fourth line guy and you need that. And in, especially in this series against Colorado, a team that I don't feel like has the same amount of forward depth, like that could be the difference, you know? And if, if you get two or three goals from your fourth line that the other team doesn't, that could decide the series for you. So yeah, I, there are some points of concern, like you say, but my bigger concern for this for this group is obviously in net. Hmm. Well, we'll get to the net in a second. I'm glad you mentioned sure. Mark Jankowski because, um, you know, I think he's also excelled as a penalty killer. And yep. an area that I was looking at when I was doing some of my research for this series is these are two teams that are number one and number two in penalties drawn this season. And I imagine I could see this being a just like most series. It could be heavily dependent on who executes better at special teams, who gets hot on the power play and scores a bunch of easy goals. And I think that is one area where if you're prognosticating, you're trying to give a blueprint for Colorado in terms of how they could potentially steal a couple of games or really threaten Calgary in the series. The one advantage I think they have a little bit or they've shown to have is um, is on the power play where they have been very good. And whether that's the uh, Eric Parnas effect or not, I'm not sure. But uh, they've certainly excelled there. And so if it turns into a special teams battle, I think like that ultimately favors Calgary just because it's clear that at 5-on-5, five five, um, as good as McKinnon and his mates are, that Calgary's definitely going to have the advantage there. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, you know, it... <sighs> It's tough because you do you do look at that Colorado group and say, I mean, who could, you, could most people pick their second line center out of a lineup? You know what I mean? It, it really is that kind of a situation for them. And maybe it doesn't matter because they have Nathan McKinnon, right? Because you know he had the blo- he had the blow up earlier in the year where he he basically said Jared Bednar you, you know you want to try coaching this team or, or something to that effect but I was against the Flames I think too right I think I think you're right about that yeah and 
I, I think that on some level, maybe Bednar doesn't have as many options as Bill Peters does to, to shake things up. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, if, if the worst thing that has to happen for you is, well, we need Nathan McKinnon to just go out there and absolutely catch fire. You know, that's certainly within the realm of possibility over a seven game series. It is. Well, I guess and that raises an interesting question here for if you were Jared Bednar. I mean, we've seen, obviously, injuries have forced his hand a little bit, but towards the end of the season here, I think even before, um, I think Landeskog might have been out, but I think Brandon was still healthy. They experimented with putting, you know, Alex Kerfoot and Derek Broussard and JT Conference, some of these less heralded guys alongside McKinnon and then spreading the wealth down and maybe going for a more depth or more balanced approach throughout their forward lines. And it sounds like Randon is going to be healthy. Landis Cog's back now. And I think those three have been so good, similar to, um, you know, like Boston's top line where we're talking about. It's like, on the one hand, like, they've just been so good that it seems silly to go away from that because it's the one thing that's working for you. But at the same time, maybe you come up, become a bit more difficult to defend if you split them up, especially if you think that McKinnon is such a singularly dominant talent that pretty much anyone who plays with him, just like give him the puck and get out of the way and let him be a zone entry machine and keep the other team hemmed in their own zone. And maybe that's the way to go, especially if you want to, without home ice in this series, get away from that uh, backland Kachuk line because it seems like they're going to get a heavy dose of them. And if you just load all of your eggs into that one basket against that type of a defensive unit, um, maybe you're kind of like facing an uphill battle just because if they even play them to something resembling a draw, uh, Calgary's depth throughout the lineup is so much better that they're yep. ultimately going to win out. Yeah, that, that's, you know, because we didn't, we didn't even talk about the defense either. You know, uh, Giordano's having another great year. Uh, it, 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 to the point where at this, where now you just go, okay, this is just going to happen until he retires. I guess he's just he's just going to continue to be really, really good. And you know, if if you're hard matching like that, that becomes a very easy thing for you to do when you're the uh, when you're the top seed. You can just put your your best shutdown guys out there against a a team that for better or worse, is, is kind of viewed as being a one-line group. Yeah. I think it's a... giordano uh, has been doing this for a while, but I think the circumstances now, just given his age and the fact that there was some speculation of like how much of his success is because Dougie Hamilton's awesome as well, and just stripping him from that and still him taking his game up a level and having the year he's had is just remarkable and probably why he's going to win the Norris. But let's... We've got like 15 seconds here. Uh, we're going to run a bit long on this one. I just do want to quickly touch on the goaltending because it seems like we're talking about this just being a complete landslide in, in Calgary's favor. And I mentioned the power play a little bit that could potentially benefit, uh, Colorado. And then in net, like Philip Brubauer has been scorching hot lately. And I'm not sure what yep. his true talent level is. We've never really seen him play for that an extended period of time for us to truly know. But if he can, kind of capture this in a bottle and keep it going. And I think we know at this point what Mike Smith is, regardless of if he has a couple of good games randomly, like that could ultimately be something that manifests itself in raising a bit of doubt into this, just being a complete cakewalk for a counter. Yeah. It's funny. I was looking at, uh, at various stuff uh, for, for the power rankings today. Cause I was looking back at what I thought of teams um, early in the season and the Flames got league average goaltending this year, like 905, just right across the board, pretty steady um, on the balance. But because they were so good defensively, 905 was actually about 20 goals worse than expected goals. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's crazy that they were that much better um, than, than the goaltending actually showed is – Boy, you know, you, you think about what this team could be with like a half decent goalie. That's crazy to think about, man. Yeah, no, it certainly is. It's, it's, yeah, it's like, well, I guess we know what that team looks like. We're in Tampa Bay. It's, uh... <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, pretty much, right? Yeah, um, and six six wins to their total. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it, it's it's kind of cliche because it's it's a bit boring from an analysis perspective to be like. Oh, this team's better, but the goaltending. But it is the case here where it's like this ultimately in like like in any series could be the, the big X factor if one of the guys just plays better than the other. That's going to be the most important determining factor. But I think there's enough questions there with Mike Smith and definitely with Dave Rich based on 
his performance as the year went along and the inexperience and the lack of a sample size there to wonder if Calgary, similar to San Jose, should have tried to do something at the deadline, but obviously it's too late now. Um, what's, so what's your pick in this series? You got Flames? And- uh, Flames in six. Yeah, you know what? Just because I want to get away from picking everyone in six, I'll go Flames in five, but um, I think I think it'll be a fun series. I think there's going to be a fair amount of goals. I could see definitely some like five, four, six, five games sprinkled in there and Nathan McKinnon putting his team on the back and on his back and really uh, looking like the best player on the ice. And so I think just for that, it'll be fun to watch. But ultimately, I think Calgary just has too much depth. Um, Ryan, let's take a quick break here to hear from the sponsor and then we're going to do the Central Division on the other end of it. With it being playoff season, it's time to start thinking about playoff beers. And most importantly, how you're going to go about maintaining it so that you can support your team while still looking like a functional, contributing member of society. It seems like a good time now to tell you about Harry's Razors because they're my personal go-to when it comes to keeping my beard in tip-top shape. Thanks to the comfortable glide of their blades and the closeness of the shave itself, you can smoothly get rid of that unruly Braden Holt BS neck beard and neatly tidy up around the edges while still preserving the integrity of the beard itself. Harry's founders changed the game because they knew that you and I and all their customers would be tired of paying up for razors that are overpriced and overdesigned. They knew that a great shave doesn't come from gimmicks like vibrating heads, flex balls, or handles that look like spaceships. These are all tactics that the leading brand has used to raise prices for decades, but no more, because Harry's has fixed that by combining a simple, clean design with quality, durable blades at a fair price. Plus, all of Harry's blades come with a 100% quality guarantee, so that if you don't love your shave, you can let them know and you'll get a good rewind. So to join myself and the 10 million others who've used Harry's, Claim your trial offer by going to harrys.com slash PDO and they'll hook you up. You're going to get a $13 value trial set that comes with everything you need for a close, comfortable shape. That includes a weighted ergonomic handle, five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. And as a listener of my show, you can redeem that trial set if you just go to harrys.com slash PDO. That's harrys.com slash PDO to redeem your offer and let them know that I sent you so you help support the show. Now let's get back to Ryan Lambert and the rest of the preview. All right, uh, let's do stars versus preds. Just, I want to get it out of the way. I've been dreading doing this series just because. Yeah, right. I think this is the series that I want to watch the least amount of. Absolutely. I mean, it's okay. Here, there's there's a couple interesting storylines here. I think the most interesting one is, um, you know, in Calgary and Colorado, we were talking a bit about the uh, you know philosophical matching. Uh, in terms of the lines and sort of what matchups we'll see and how much of the 3M line is going to face McKinnon. And in this case, it'll be fascinating to see because both teams um, are so one-dimensional in the sense that they rely on their top line for such a heavy percentage of their offense to see, you know, how the respective coaches feel about the rest of the supporting cast and how they try to shelter them and how they try to use them and whether they're comfortable going power versus power and just matching those lines against each other or whether Jim Montgomery tries aggressively to get facts out there against Johansson's line to potentially free up Radulov and Sagan. I think there's going to be some like chess play there that for like the massive hockey nerds and enthusiasts is going to be relatively interesting. But I also think you should be smashing the under in every one of these games because there's going to be a lot of uh, two one results. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, just from looking at stuff today, I was just like, well, on the one hand, a bunch of their really good players that were supposed to really contribute to the offense missed pretty good chunks of the season. Victor Arvidsson only played like 50 or 55, 60 games, something in that area. Um, and P.K. Subban missed a ton of time. And Kyle Turris, obviously, he didn't have the kind of year anybody wanted, but he missed a ton of time. And... I don't know. The fact that Roman Yossi is the second leading scorer on this team and they're everybody thought coming into the year, they were going to be really good and they ended up winning that division. That's really surprising to me. It is. I mean, you also uh, forgot Philip Forsberg missing like 20 games. I did forget Philip Forsberg. You're right about that. I mean, Forsberg and Arvidsson are their leading goal scorers by a mile. And both guys miss 20 games. And they both miss a ton of time. I know. It speaks to how good those two guys are, obviously. And the fact that without them, uh, there isn't too much there to fall back on. Now, fortunately, they are healthy at this point. So I think we can expect those three, along with Ryan Johansson, are going to be dominant and really tilt the ice in their favor. Um 
but yeah, I, I, I think from Dallas's perspective, I think Ben's a bit banged up right now, but I assume he's going to, he's going to be back in the lineup. We've seen occasionally they put him with Sagan and Radulov, but then they've also been trying out guys like Lupe Hintz there and Jason Dickinson and putting uh, Ben on the second line. We talked about Lizzie McKinnon, but do you have, would you have a personal preference if you were running uh, the stars in terms of whether you would just topple that line and just try your hand with everything else and hope those guys can survive until Sagan is ready to go back out there? Or would you split those guys up and try to like throw a life raft to some of the second and third line players because they need it? Yeah, Tyler Sagan's playing about 24 minutes a night for me in the playoffs. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine, you know, like they're, they're just so shallow up front and especially for guys who can fill in on that, on that wing on the top line if Ben gets shuffled down. And, you know, Ben hasn't had a particularly great season either. So, it's one of those things where you're either say, like you're really gambling on maybe you just don't get any offense in that game if you if you put him if you drop him down a line and I don't know I, I it's the playoffs I don't know if you can really uh, gamble like that I think you just kind of go with what you know works and you you put the the big three back together and, and you know hopefully you can get some power play time. For him, I guess. Yeah, I agree. I had, I had uh, our good buddy uh, Greg Wachinski on recently, and we were talking about this Ooh. exact <laughs> exactly. Um, and we had uh, we had this exact conversation. And where I lean right now is, I just don't think Ben has enough left in the tank to carry his own line sustainably for an extended period of time. I guess maybe in a playoff series, you could argue you don't need him to carry it for that long. But I think at this point, he's like you could squeeze more out of that orange if you just put him as a supporting player who's sole responsibility is to finish around the net and sort of feast on whatever Sagan and Radulov create for him as opposed to getting sort of mediocre results with him on the second line. Like that, that sort of seems to be counterintuitive. So that's what I would do. But I mean, ultimately when you have as little uh, scoring depth as they have, there's no real great answers, but you're right. If I'm Jim Montgomery, I'm sort of going down swinging with my best guys and if I lose because those guys get tired or just get outplayed eventually, I can live with that. But, uh, I'd have a much more difficult time, you know, sitting at home watching round two and on just because I was stubborn and I was sort of trying to get everyone else involved. Yep. No, that's, that's exactly right. Like you, at some point you have to dance with who you came to the dance with. And I, I just pulled up their, their hockey reference page and the gap between Jamie Ben, who again, didn't have a particularly good season, had 53 points, and then the next closest forward on the in the lineup is uh, Radakoxa with 30. Mm. Yeah, that, that you can't, you can't, you can't uh, try to mix things up in the in the postseason with those guys. No, definitely not. Um, yeah, it's it's stunning the turnaround of this team, and sort of obviously they made it back to the postseason, and I'm sure they're happy with that. But just when you compare uh, sort of their results and how they played about four years ago, three years ago under Lindy Ruff with that high octane team. And now I guess there's their second in, in defense in terms of goals against, but only the Ducks and Kings scored fewer goals, uh, which is stunning because they're the Arizona Coyotes are in the NHL. And I think their leading scorer was like Vinny Hanastroza and perfectly fine player. But when he's leading your team, it's like, Oh my God, how, and then the fact that the stars have, Sagan, Ben, Radulov, Klingberg, Heiskanen, and still managed to generate less offense than some of these other teams is stunning. But I guess, you know, when you look at it on the other end of the ice, and we've talked so much about goaltending so far and how it is the ultimate determining factor, if you told me that Ben Bishop is going to be able to hold up and give me 60 minutes in every game or, or plus whatever goes into overtime for the duration of this series, I'd like my chances just because he's been that good this year. But man, um, it seems like pretty much at any point he could go down with a lower body injury and that must be infuriating for both himself and the coaching staff and stars fans. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, in looking at the stuff I got wrong early in the year, I, you know, I, I kind of feel like at, as a college hockey enthusiast, um, I, I kind of knew what I was getting with Jim Montgomery and I, and I liked kind of his philosophy about the game and, and how his team, how his teams at Denver played and that kind of thing. Um, but the thing I thought would hold them back was, uh, you know, who, who, who would want to go into a season relying on Ben Bishop and Anton Hudobin. 
And yet they were both awesome. They mm-hmm. were on, they were incredible. Ben Bishop should probably win the Vesna, uh, based on he led the league in save percentage. He probably doesn't have the games played, but you know, um, I, I don't think anybody reasonably saw that coming. I think that's I think it's nice for them to get into the playoffs with him having been so good. But uh, you know, I like you said. You're just waiting for the for his groin to just fall out of his body in the middle of a game at some point, and that that's a scary way to go through life, especially in the playoffs. But even over the course of the full eighty-two, I mean, I, I live in constant fear of my groin falling out of my body, and it's a very yeah. I can attest to the fact that it's a very scary way to live your life. Um, no, you're <laughs> right. I mean, first in save percentage, uh, first in goals goals saved above average. I think fourth on uh, evolving wilds goals above replacement. Uh, so yeah, Bishop had a remarkable year, and I guess maybe the only thing that's gonna work against him in the Vezina discussion, other than the games played, is the fact that Hudobin himself was so good that it's like at that point you wonder how much of it was the system and how much of it was the actual yeah. individual play when both guys were that good. But I don't know, like it's it's gonna be an ugly series anyway you slice it. I mean, I like some of the individual talent, obviously, but then we haven't even talked about the fact that the Predators have the 31st ranked power play and the additions they made at the deadline of Simmons and Granlund haven't panned out at all. Um, you know, for, for different reasons, but neither guys really gelled into the lineup. And so there's a lot of questions here and there's a lot of concerns, uh, justifiably for both teams. And then at the same time, whichever team does get through this in round one, I don't think there's necessarily someone looking at them in round two because the central is so wide open that makes it like unfathomable that they could sneak into the Western Conference final. And I guess that just speaks to the disparity, a surprising disparity in talent level, I think, because it's, wildly different from what I think we would have expected heading into the season, just in terms of like when we thought that the best teams in the Pacific would prob- or in the West would probably be in the Central. Yeah, I, I was very surprised. And again, like injuries definitely play a role or whatever, but I was very surprised that this team was, was just so bad, especially on special teams where uh, I guess their PK was all right, but their power play was like, under 13%, if I remember from looking at the numbers earlier today. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, that's unfathomable for a team with this much talent, like on paper, that you could go 13%. And I, I don't know if there's a good like answer to that question that you can just kind of cobble together in the next 7, 14 games, however more many more they end up playing. But it, it's, a, it's a tough one for sure. Yeah. Well... I mean, just superficially, it does look like it's just... I mean, I think they're one of the few teams that runs, or at least for a while, was running two defensemen on their power on their top unit power play, and it seems like, you know, that's kind of the calling card of this team, and unfortunately, in 2019, if your power play consists of point shots, regardless of how talented those guys shooting the puck are, it's probably not the best way to run your yeah. power play formation, so I don't know, you're right, I don't know if at this point in the season that's something that is as fixable, but it's... um yeah, it's going to be something to monitor for sure. Let's uh, before we switch series, what's uh, what's your pick in this one? It really feels like a coin flip for me, and so I went with the team. I think it's just a little bit deeper. Nashville in seven. Yeah, yeah, I have that too. Although, um, yeah, I, I think it's going to be a long series. I think it's going to be very drawn out and painful, and uh, I'm going to look forward to watching a lot of the other series uh, more so than this one. Let's let's finish off with Blues Jets, which. I think will be more watchable, but also has a ton of interesting questions surrounding it. And the most pressing one is sort of what do we make of this Jets team? Because they come into the postseason, uh, you know, stumbling out of the gate or stumbling into the gate or however you want to put it. But it's like, it's a thing that's been going on for long enough now in terms of their underlying uh, shot metrics and sort of how much that has plummeted from their past norms where I, I just don't ha- really have a great grasp of how good this team really is because it's easy to be infatuated by the individual talent and the names on this team, but then the results just haven't been there for long enough now where it's like, what do we make of them? How much should we buy into that? And do you think it's correctable between now and whenever they get going against St. Louis? St. Louis? I, I'm not sure that it's correctable in, in the next like three or four days here. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's fascinating because you know that that top line for them was so good this year, and and you go okay well Patrick Line had a bit of a, a down season well he scored thirty goals 
And if and if that's going to be your down season for a for a second line forward, I can't imagine many teams would complain too much about that. Um, you know, obviously Dustin Bufflin missed like half the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, who who is the, even their most used defenseman this year? Like just in terms true. of games played, was Truba it Tyler probably? Myers? It might have Truba. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It probably was Truba. Um, oh yeah, Truba played two more games than him. Um, but it, it really is a thing where you go. I don't know. At some point, with all that talent and and not just talent like putting the puck in the net, which you know that's its own thing, but just like in terms of the way they played the game, being consistently below fifty percent in just about any metric you want to look at, I think you have to say you know maybe it's a coaching thing. I, I honestly, I honestly, you know don't have a better answer for it than that or injuries because they were fine in net um, despite some grumbling about Connor Hellebuck early in the year where he wasn't very good. Um, they, they got a lot of production out of their top line and they got some, some pretty good contributions from their depth, but maybe not as much as you might want. Yeah. That's kind of the weird part of this where I definitely you know, I, I feel for them and I see the argument of, you know, for a while there, they didn't have Bufflin, Morrissey and Nick Ehlers. And obviously three, all three of those guys are massive contributors for them. And now they've gotten Bufflin and Ehlers back. And it sounds like Morrissey's going to be ready to go for game one, which is obviously going to be huge, assuming he's healthy. Huge, but yeah. it doesn't really explain the fact that they have a bunch of other guys, especially Shifley and Wheeler, who are big names, who have the counting stats and the production offensively, but completely just fell off the map from possession perspective at 5-1-5. And I, I get that losing defensemen of those caliber of Bufflin and Morrissey is a big loss and is going to hurt your overall numbers. But you'd expect that guys of their you know stature should be able to at least kind of stay afloat. And there was a while there where I think Shifley was like a 41 or 42% uh, shot share a guy for an extended period of time. And that's sort of the tough thing to reconcile where it's like, it just seems like yeah, I see all these excuses and I get them, but it still seems like the results should have been better even acknowledging them. Yeah. Like I said, I, I think at some point, you know, obviously if you're get, it depends on who you're getting matched up with and that kind of thing. But I, I've just never, I guess, been a particularly big fan of Paul Maurice's, um, like the way his teams play, I guess you'd say, because I, you know, apart from when you would get the occasional, oh, his goalie's been great for six months, kind of a kind of a season. I, I just haven't really seen the results at any point with with his teams that make me go, oh yeah, this is the kind of guy who should be really, you know, uh, pulling the strings for for a team with this much talent. It feels like that loss last year to Vegas in which I think you could like, you know, rationally say that Vegas deserve, uh, Winnipeg deserved a better fate and definitely at least played them to oh, draw, sure. not outplay them. And the goaltending was just on another level for Vegas. But it feels like that series, like, I don't know, there's some sort of like lasting hangover from that or, or what happened, but it feels like it broke them from the perspective of from what I've seen. They've gotten sort of not back to, but they've changed their style to this much more kind of like, traditional heavy hockey meat and potatoes playoff yep. brand where it's like they're just dumping the puck in a lot. They're constantly just getting it off the glass and out of their zone. And I think what was the, what the appeal was last year for them was like, it felt that they, they kind of checked all the boxes for everyone's personal preferences where they had all these big physical players who could also play fun. a skill fun yeah. game. And you're like, Oh, I can get behind this team. They kind of give a little bit of everything for everyone's taste. And this year it's been kind of dumbed down to a much more simplistic version, which I feel like's taken away both the aesthetic appeal, but also clearly the results as well. And that, that's a shame. And I wonder how much of that is, as you as you mentioned, the coaching. Yeah, it, it's funny when when you said that the, that series kind of broke them a little bit, like how, how they thought about their approach or whatever. Um, it really reminded me, maybe to a lesser degree, of when San Jose got reverse swept. Mm-hmm. And they were like, "Well, we gotta get, we gotta go out and get every guy who can barely skate in the league because if we're gonna, if we're gonna get reverse swept, at least we'll be hard to play against." 
Yeah. And, and that kind of feels like what happened here a little bit too. And it certainly wouldn't be the first time we've constantly seen that teams have a really tough time dealing rationally with playoff disappointment, right? Like it's like, yeah, for it, sure. It breaks teams sometimes and that's unfortunate. But, um, let's talk a bit about St. Louis because, you know, they clearly, um, I think sort of embody like the biggest turnaround this season or I guess the positive one. I guess, uh, Buffalo was the most, uh, negative one overall, but, you know, they had that 11 game winning streak. They really saved their season. They were last at one point in January, I believe. They've rattled off this stretch of complete five on five dominance for a really long period of time now. And with Bennington's emergence, even if he's not necessarily a, a 930 save percentage goalie, as long as he's not Jake Allen, I feel like that's enough for them. And, you know, you have Tarasenko playing like Tarasenko again. And it's hilarious to look back now at the trade rumors that he was in earlier when he wasn't scoring goals, but. All that matters for them now is that he's still on a team and he's playing like himself again. And so you put all this stuff together and their depth in particular. And, you know, they've really become this trendy team. Now, I think people are having a tough time, uh, shaking all of the past playoff disappointment of different incarnations of similar St. Louis Blues teams and how they failed to get over the hump, regardless of how talented they might have been. How do you feel about this year's team? So again, because because of the thing I wrote where I look back at kind of where I stood on these teams early in the year, I didn't think they would be particularly good, like outside the playoff picture. But that was that was despite the fact that I liked their summer, I thought they added some players that could really, you know, just shore up and make them a little tougher to to beat over the course of the full eighty two, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I also said, but I don't think Mike Yo is the right man for the job, and I certainly don't think Jake Allen is the right man for the job. Um, so you swap out both of those two guys, and I go, oh, this seems pretty good, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, obviously they've been playing great since the coaching change. Just unbelievable change pretty much overnight. And... You know, again, like you said, Bennington's not a 930 goalie because nobody's a 930 goalie. But if he can be even adequate in a way that Jake Allen really never was, I think this is a team that, you know, should. it's not that they'll have an easy time with Winnipeg, but I think that they, even though they're the underdog, I kind of see them as actually being the favorite if you consider – you know, just since the coaching change. Yeah. And I think it'll be an interesting litmus test because obviously both teams are entering this series and going in completely different directions and sort of, it'll be fun to look back at after we know the results of this series in terms of kind of whether we should have bought more into the red flags Winnipeg had or how much, you know, credit we should have given St. Louis for their turnaround and how legit it was. And I don't know, like we're going to get to the picks here in a second and, I'm leaning very heavily towards St. Louis, but I can't shake this nagging feeling in the back of my mind where I'm going to feel like an idiot after I watch Winnipeg put it all together and realize that tantalizing potential of all the firepower they had. I don't know. I don't know. How do you feel about this one? Yeah. So I took uh, St. Louis in seven mm. um, because like, like you're very rarely in the NHL are you going to, or any sport really, are you going to go wrong betting on star power? You know what I mean? Right. Um, and, and, St. Louis has some very good players, but they don't have, you know, just a list of guys who could be all-stars in any given year like Winnipeg does. Um, that being said, you know, if, if it comes down to coaching, which the playoffs so often do, I, I, I think I give St. Louis the edge. Um, Can you imagine and, that you would have said that about Craig Berube a couple of years ago? No, for sure, yeah, but... Just like I said, he came in and they were like, oh, we're just going to be insanely dominant now. <laughs> and it, it like it really was that much of like a flick of the switch kind of a thing. There was there wasn't any real adjustment period as far as I remember um, where maybe a couple of games and they were just like, no, no, we're we're insanely tough to beat now. And yeah, I, I think, you know, just. At the end of the day, I feel like maybe it's just the coaching will matter. And, and like you said, St. Louis does have that, that ability to really pack a punch at the top of the lineup that, you know, they can match Winnipeg stars if they need to. You know, Belichick gets credit for coining uh, Do Your Job. I think Brubay should get credit for being insanely dominant. 
Just, yeah. He just tells his team to be insanely dominant. Just do it. Um, it's, it's working so far. Yeah. I think, I mean, the Jets, I think, regardless, are going to be beating themselves up because it seemed like they were like kind of like locked into that one seat in the central. And now because of that plummet down the standings, they do have home eyes in this series, but St. Louis is a significantly more difficult opponent in my mind than Dallas. And even if they get through this, they likely have to go into Nashville and without home ice. And so, They've, you know, they've kind of uh, buried themselves a little bit here. And I'm really curious to see how this plays out. I, I, I think that was a great point about sort of the importance of star power. And when you look at the St. Louis team, one thing I do love about them is they have speed and skill and depth through all four lines. And there's sort of this perfect encapsulation of your modern, your modern day forward lineup in 2019 where you do need to construct your lineup that way. But they don't have the star power that Winnipeg does. And if those guys get hot, it could be the, the difference maker. So I'm going to go blues in six. Um, but I really, in terms of my picks, like this is probably one of the ones I feel least sure about just because it really could blow up in my face. But I think it's going to be fun to watch and, and it will be, the two teams are so different. So it'll be interesting to see sort of how those, uh, things mesh stylistically and what matters and what wins out. All right, um, let's uh, let's get out of here. Um, plug some stuff. What uh, what's going on? What are you working on? You're obviously we talked about the podcast you did. Um, I assume you're a busy man, like uh, seeing where your hockey writer is these days. Yeah, uh, you can check out uh, my stuff at Yahoo. I, I just uh, I just passed ten years for for Yahoo slash Puck Daddy, mm. um, which is I can't believe that's true, but it is. Well, and I just uh, ten days for Yahoo, so. We're we're all doing great. Yeah. <laughs> and um and uh yeah, Puck Soup uh just started doing that a couple of months ago and we're having a really good time. It's me, it's Greg Wyshynski, and it's uh Sean McIndoo, aka Down Goes Brown, and we're just chopping it up about hockey and pop culture and all that kind of stuff. Uh that I think that's it for my plugs. Awesome, man. Well it was fun to chop it up with you here on the PDO cast finally and to get you on and um yeah, I'm excited about these playoffs and I'm excited to watch these games and uh, hopefully we'll be able to get you back on sometime down the road. Sure, sounds good. Thanks for having me. Cheers, man. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO Cast.